Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Introvert Theater podcast. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the film Batman Returns, um, directed by Tim Burton. We have a returning Michael Keaton as Batman. Uh, we've got Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, and Danny DeVito portraying the Penguin. Now, this is a direct sequel to the 89 film, also directed by Tim Burton, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of a departure, not only in aesthetic, but also just the way the film is shot, and the film score just seems a lot more bombastic and just more interesting, because you find that each character has their own theme, and we'll get to that in a bit. But we'll start with the plot, obviously. So you want to... One, one thing I've, I've heard in listening to other people's observations on the film is that by the middle of the film, they're not quite sure what it's about. And I would argue that the film is about ulterior motives. Okay, it's it's not something that's directly introduced in the beginning of the film, but in meeting characters like Max Shrek, who's played by Christopher Walken, uh, we'll start with him. He's basically a business mogul who has his hands in a little bit of everything when it comes to Gotham City. And in the beginning, he is having a conversation with the mayor at that point. And they're talking about conservation of energy. And that's his big deal. He's, he's trying to get the mayor to invest in a, in a power plant to preserve uh, energy for Gotham City. Because he, he doesn't want to see um, the, city, the city just kind of dwindle from that point. And ultimately we find that his whole scheme is basically to store and stockpile energy and just have a legacy for his son to kind of latch onto. So it's not so much about preservation of energy for Gotham as it is preservation of his own legacy. Okay, and then we'll start with, uh, next we'll move on to Selena Kyle, Catwoman. Um, when we first are introduced to her during that first office meeting with the mayor, uh, she's kind of like laughed at and and just kind of looked down upon. She's very mousy and very hesitant to speak up when, when she knows that she should. And of course, this changes when Max Shrek, her boss, tosses her out the window one night for breaking into his files and and finding out his true motive when it comes to the power plant. And the reason she did that was to kind of spruce up for a meeting that he had upcoming with Bruce Wayne. So once she is revived and takes upon the mantle of Catwoman, we find that her motive from that point forward is revenge, although she's she's still hiding behind the guise of Selina Kyle throughout the film. Then, of course, we have the Penguin, who's really interesting, uh, whose real name is Oswald Cobblepot in the film. We find that his intention <laughs> ultimately is, as bizarre as it is, is to find the first sons, the firstborn sons of Gotham, and drown them. And this comes from the very beginning of the film, which we get this really, really, really dark and sort of bizarre introduction to the Cobblepots. In fact, the film opens on 
Cobblepot, Cobblepot Manor, and we see uh, Mrs. Cobblepot in labor. And she eventually gives birth to their, their firstborn son, the Penguin, a.k.a. Oswald Cobblepot. And this horrific scream comes from the room in which she's giving labor. And a few seconds later, we see that their child is locked up in this black sort of case with little bars. And you can make out this child's, you know, chubby little hands kind of around the bar. And you notice that the, the hands seem slightly disfigured. So they're just mortified and terrified of this this child that they've um, given birth to. And so all, what they what they do is they they um, put it in a in a basket, take it out to the park, over a bridge, and toss it into this little canal that kind of feeds into the sewer. And we follow this basket as it falls down the sewer through this labyrinth, and it eventually ends up under an abandoned um, under an abandoned attraction at the Gotham Zoo called the Arctic World. And you see these penguins walk up to the basket, and it's implied that, you know, he's lived in the sewer for 33-plus years and has been raised by this uh, this gang called the Red Triangle Circus Gang, who are kind of a band of misfits and thieves um, who hide their identities behind circus performers. So it's a really bizarre introduction, but... It's it's almost a complete departure thematically from the very first film, Batman 89. And it really just kind of sets the tone for everything from that point forward. So next, um, we'll talk about duality. Okay, because that's a really big part of the film. We have Michael Keaton portraying Bruce Wayne and Batman. And this time around, it's more about him accepting the role of Batman, but also kind of dealing with trying to live sort of a normal life. And we learn that he's separated from Vicki Vale, uh, who was his first love interest, because of his issues with, you know, having to switch back and forth between Bruce Wayne and, and Batman. And then we have Selina Kyle, who is really just trying to find a way to live her life given her situation and her kind of fractured situation. And then we have the Penguin, who also kind of deals with duality, but his is more... His is more of an ulterior motive. His whole thing is trying to win the hearts of Gotham by saying that he's trying to find his trying to trying to find out more about his past about his parents and who he was where he came from etc but really he makes a pact with Max Schreck uh to basically oust the current mayor of Gotham City and have him take his place and reap the benefits and next we'll go on to setting and set design because this, to me, is, is a huge part of what makes this film work. You notice that this time around, Gotham structures are slightly different. They still have that art deco and film noir look to them that was established in Batman 89. But they have more of a, 
more of a gothic kind of look to them. You have these huge structures, these huge monoliths and statuesque um, faces and figures in the backgrounds of the buildings now. And to me, this only enhances the film because we're to accept the fact that it takes place in the same Gotham that was established in the first film, but it's different and visually interesting enough to captivate us from beginning to end. And it's actually one of the film's strongest suits, I think. Uh, in addition to that, you've got the costume work. We have Max Shrek, who's always wearing some sort of pinstripe suit. And it it's kind of like a, a power play. You know, he's he's very much got his pulse on the... Um, he very much has his finger on the pulse when it comes to fashion, and he's not afraid to show it. In fact, he has a department store in the film, and a lot of it houses some of his own fashion uh, lines that he has going. Then you've got Selena Kyle, who, again, starts off the film kind of meager and mousy, and her dress is very conservative, where once she becomes Catwoman, it's it's you know, pleather and white stitching and this really great detail to her Catwoman costume. And her Catwoman costume, I think, is really interesting because it has this kind of dominatrix look to it, but the white stitching and threads really kind of set her costume apart because it's also kind of a representation of her fractured state of mind. And then you have the Penguin, whose look is a huge departure from how he's been depicted depicted in both the comics and the 60s Batman television show prior to, to it. He's always been depicted as this, um, you know, wealthy go-getter, short, round, pudgy, with the monocle. This time around, he's basically deformed. He has um, a long incredibly long nose, impossibly long nose, and hands that kind of resemble flippers. And he's always drooling or spitting out this black bile from his mouth, and he always sounds like he's in pain whenever he's walking or talking, like he, he's always grunting, and it's just really grotesque. But an interesting take on the character nonetheless. Now, another strong suit or another strong part of this movie, is the the score by Danny Elfman, who has basically worked with Tim Burton since the beginning, since uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and from that point on until now, actually. And his score is just tremendous. It really, really drives the film, and I wish that there was a version of this film with an isolated track you don't really see that anymore. There was a few DVDs and maybe a few Blu-rays here and there that would have an isolated track where you would hear nothing but the score set to the visuals and all the dialogue is removed. And I think his score is extremely effective in this film. If you put it to the visuals, there it's a nice juxtaposition because it's it's such a dark film, thematically and just visually. And the score really complements it in a way that, that only benefits it. 
So another thing that we should talk about is the director, Tim Burton himself. He lends his own artistic merit to this film, and I think a lot of what he does in general. I think he's one of the few directors today that's still active today that you can consider an auteur versus a director. Now, an auteur is essentially someone who has their own sort of visual style, and it's and it's immediately recognizable whenever you go see one of their movies. And everything from uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure through Nightmare Before, Christ- Nightmare Before Christmas to Big Fish, all of them have a very sort of distinct visual style that he brings to it. And I love that he wears his his inspirations on his sleeve. For instance, uh, there's a scene towards the end of the film where Penguin is retreating from uh, police officers and he finds himself back on the bridge that he was tossed over as a child. And it's a really unique visual because it it harkens back to a film that came out much, much earlier. And in fact, that, that film was called um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari which, if you ever take any film classes, is one of the first films that you'll be introduced to once you get on the topic of uh, German Expressionism. And that scene kind of mimics Cesare, who finds himself on a bridge similar to Oswald in Escaping Authority Figures. So there's a lot of really neat callbacks throughout the film, like that one, and uh, Max Schreck is another obvious one. Max Schreck, um, just kind of alluding to the actor who portrayed Count Orlock in the film Nosferatu, also se- several years earlier. So, why does this film work? After seeing Danny DeVito's penguin riding a giant rubber duck, penguins with rockets strapped to their backs, why does this work? It's a combination of all of these things. It's the realization of an artist's uncompromised vision. I think by the end you'll find yourself sympathizing with a perverse penguin man as he meets his demise. You'll find yourself in awe of Michelle Pfeiffer's portrayal of Catwoman because she's so incredibly believable. One moment she's confident and bulletproof, and the next she's in tears and you completely empathize with her. All of this juxtaposed with Elfman's score and his careful crafting of themes for all these characters, I think, whether it's the ear-piercing strings that reflect Selina Kyle's state of mind, or the dark kind of foreboding penguin theme that somehow mimics his slow, lumbering movements, it, it all works. It all works when juxtaposed with the visuals. And it's a really fan it's just really fantastic to see it all come together. Now, does that make a film less valid if it relies so heavily on these elements? I would personally say no because these elements are all essential in storytelling and, more importantly, film. We all express ourselves one way or another, and it's not always through words. Sometimes words are not enough, and that's where a strong score and visuals can effectively take the place of dialogue. Film, I feel, should be an escape after all, and Batman Returns is just that. It's an escape into a world with impossibly tall skyscrapers and dark nights 
It's an escape into the mind of Tim Burton at his peak, and that in itself is a surreal experience committed to film in what I feel is one of the most beautifully unique films of its genre. So with that, I think it's a good place to end, and I, I cannot recommend this film enough, if nothing else, um, for its artistic merits. Uh, that said, next week, I think I want to allow myself to kind of scale back and and have the episode serve more of as an in, as an introduction, which is what I probably should have started off with to begin with when it comes to this podcast. So a lot of next week's episode is just going to be uh, reflections on the podcast itself, uh, maybe a little bit about myself, and what just the goals and intentions are when it comes to analyzing films and uh, just film theory and criticism in general. So, until next week, thanks for tuning in, take care, and stay healthy.